yeah, yeah, that was, the weeks go by fast. I felt like a long time ago, but um, I guess that means they go by slow, all right? But we are glad that y'all are back. All right, so Mark chapter 9 is where we are today, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, 38 through 42, and the title of today's sermon is The Man Who Was Not a Calvinist. The Man Who Was Not a Calvinist. That's the title of the sermon. It really is. Now, unless you're a Calvinist, or unless you're not a Calvinist, if you're not a Calvinist, then the title of the sermon is The Man Who Was a Calvinist. And you'll see why I'm saying that in a minute. So let's pray for grace, and then we'll read this. Oh God, we come before you, Holy Spirit, we pray for your help. Help us to see the truth of your scriptures, that they would be applied to us. Give us grace, oh God, to be changed by your word. Help us to be drawn to Christ today. Thank you for Christ. Thank you, oh God, that uh, this, this unity that we have is rooted in him and in him alone. Give us grace now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 40... Uh, verse 38, verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble It would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, this conversation is still taking place in the house that we saw it started. We saw the conversation start in last week. So, in verse 33 from last week, it's talking about how they went through Galilee. Christ says that the Son of Man must die, he must uh, be delivered up, and then he's going to be raised from the dead. And then they go into this house in verse 33, and they're saying, Christ, I don't understand what you're talking about. What do you mean? You know, what were you, what, what? Well, Christ is asking them, but they're also, they're also confused, right? So Christ turns around and says, okay, on the way, you guys are discussing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the best, who's going to, and you're striving for this. That's your ambition. You have this selfish ambition to, to, to have some mastery and authority and some rank over each other. And then he starts talking about how that's, that's, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. And we talked about how there's a new, there's a new ethic that's taking place in the kingdom of God is among God's people. And so this is a carryover from that conversation in verse 38. John, out of nowhere, now this is interesting because John, you'll never hear, you'll never see anywhere else in the scriptures where John just kind of pops out and just says something. You never see that in any of the gospels where John, especially in the gospel of Mark, where John blurts something out. Who is John though? This is very, This goes along with this. John is the apostle of love. Usually when you hear about apostles, John is the guy that that talks about how God is love and we're we're, we're known by by our love for one another. We're known by how we treat each other. That's how we're known. This is the apostle of love. But before he's the apostle of love, you have to realize that when Christ is walking on earth during his earthly ministry... What do you have, John? What's he like at the time of Christ? Well, this is the apostle that wants to call down fire upon the heads of the Samaritans because the Samaritans aren't believing in Christ. And he wants to call down fire on their heads. This is, the, this is the apostle that wants to sit at the right hand of Christ whenever he enters into the kingdom over, his other, over the other disciples. So, you know, hey, Jesus, whenever you enter into glory, 
you know, can I, you know, can I have that privileged place of honor sitting right next? This is the John that is saying in a very sectarian manner, Christ, we saw this guy who was doing this thing in your name. We didn't like it. So guess what? We stopped him. And so, you know why this is encouraging? This is encouraging because Christ never kicks this guy to the curb. And look how he turns out. Talking about sanctification in the in the um, catechism class today. We're talking about sanctification. This is why, right? This is why it's so it's so important. It's so beautiful to realize that Christ does not kick this guy to the curb, and he could have. I mean, he could. Have, the second he's calling down fire on these Samaritans, John, you're out. What kind of attitude is that? What kind of spirit is that? The second Jesus finds out that these guys are trying to stop, hinder the work of Christ going on, John, you're out. What do you mean you're trying to stop the work of God, right? But he doesn't. He works with this guy. There's maturity involved in John. There's maturity in us. Christ doesn't just kick us to the curb. He's working in us. And we, of course, need to do that with each other, right? Work with each other, help each other, be patient. All these things with each other. So here you have John blurting out, Christ, guess what I saw? Guess what we saw? We saw someone casting out demons, casting out demons in your name. What's the irony behind this? What's the irony? Two, two sections ago, who was trying to cast out demons and couldn't do it? These guys, the disciples were trying to cast out demons, and they couldn't do it. Now they see somebody actually not only try it, but they're effective at it, and they turn around and they're like, no way, man, you've got to stop doing that. You're not allowed to do that anymore. Because you're not, why? Because they, look what he says. We try to prevent him because he was not following us. He wasn't following us. So he's doing it in the name of Christ. Here's the thing on this, okay? There are times when people will do things in the name of Christ in an ingenuine way, in a a false way. Christ says this, remember we read Matthew 7 today. What does he say? There'll be many who come to me and they'll say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. I casted out demons in your name. All of these things. And Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you. Your worker of lawlessness. You see in Acts the the seven sons of Sceva. The seven sons of Sceva, y'all remember them? They go and they try to do these, these, they try to exercise these demons. The demons turn on them and they say, well, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? They turn on these guys and they chase them out. So it's not to say that just because you use the name, it's not like some kind of magical incantation kind of thing where you can just be an anybody and go around and use the name and expect, ex- expect to be blessed for that or, or, or something like that. You can use the name of Christ falsely. Christ says there will be many false Christs who rise up after me. False Christ. The Bible says that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light, meaning a false minister who is using the name of Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses always use the name of Christ. Mormons will even come and they'll use the name of Christ and tell you they're Christians. But that's a false Christ. There's a lot of different. But however, here's the thing. When it comes to this man and whatever he's doing, he's casting out demons in, his, in, in the name of Christ, it's clear that there's something else going on here because Christ is going to rebuke these guys. But the name is important. In Psalm 44, this is the beauty of all of the power for all of us is the fact that, you know, when you go out and you want to, what, what is Christ's mission when he comes to earth? His mission is to crush, to step on the head of Satan, to crush Satan, to bind the strong man. And then when he commissions us, you know, every week in the benediction, in Numbers, it talks about how God places his name upon you, sets his name upon you, and then you're commissioned out of here. You're blessed with the name to go out. And as you go out, you are taking part of that, 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 that work of 
Crushing the head of the serpent. That's what we're called to do as we go out through the gospel. But we don't do it in our own strength, right? We do it in the name of Christ. We do it through the power of Christ. It says in Psalm 44, Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. In your name. Through your name. That's why the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow, that there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. He is this is the name above all names. There's a lot there, right? But it's not a magical sense. There's power in that because of the content behind that. So this guy's out here is casting out demons in the name of Christ. It, it's obviously genuine. And then what do you have? They try to stop him. And this is where we need to just pause a moment and read this. And re- read it very slowly, okay? Look what he says here. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. That's good. And we tried to prevent him. Uh, Okay, why? Right? Because he was not a Calvinist. Really? Think about this, right? He's saying something like that. If you're a Calvinist, we know, you know, it's like, hey, we can see these works of God, but listen, are you guys Calvinists? You're not? It's not genuine. That's how we are. Or, of course, on the flip side, and usually it's this way. Look at John Wesley. John Wesley, George Whitfield, who is a Calvinist. John Wesley, let's work together. Whitfield saying that to Wesley. Wesley, let's work together, man. I know we have some differences in our theology. I know we, I'm a, you're right, I'm a Calvinist and you're not. Let's work together. John Wesley, your God's a demon. You worship an idol. Get away from me. You know? John Calvin, going to Luther. Calvin. Calvin says, Luther, Luther I, I really admire everything you've done. I really appreciate the work for the Reformation. Can I meet you and hang out and just kind of pick your brain? Luther, get away from me, Calvin. You believe in a false Christ, right? Fourteen of the fifteen doctrines, they go to the colloquy. They're deciding. They're gathered together. They're, they get all the heads of the Reformation there. Luther and, and Zwingli and all these different guys, and they're all gathered together. Bootser, I think there's all kinds of guys. They're, and they're, they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, can we agree on these essentials? Because if we can, it's going to unite us and yoke us, and we're going to be even more effective in this work of Reformation. So they're hammering it out. Fourteen doctrines. They're like, yeah, man, there's, <laughs> think about that. Fourteen doctrines, you're in agreement. And then you get to the Lord's Supper. And then they start throwing blows almost. People are crying. They're weeping. Luther's pulling the tablecloth and saying he's written something beforehand, preemptively, saying this is my body kind of thing. And the other guy, this is that kind of sectarian attitude that John has. We saw this guy, and because he wasn't part of our group, therefore he was disqualified, he's nullified from doing anything for the kingdom of God. That's why we stopped him. We tried to, we tried to put a kibosh on him. No way, you can't do this. So what's going on here, of course, is there's a narrow perspective of God's work. Here's the, here's the problem with all that. I mean, there's, there's several problems, and we're going to talk about this as we go on. But here's the thing, okay? Let's say this. Brought up in a, in a house that was Reformed. Exposed to the Reformed gospel, right? Not a lot of people. And if you were, that's a blessing. But that's the point. The process of sanctification is not just you grow in Christian maturity. Process is a, you grow in theology. You grow in your understanding of the Scriptures. You, you, you develop as you go. And so it's not to say, I mean, this is the importance of confessions, actually, because you do have these guardrails, you have these boundaries. You can come out and you can say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. 
This is an accurate summation of what the Scriptures teach. And this is where the goal is, right? This is the goal. But even then, it's like, okay, even if I go through there and I, then what do you have? Well, you can't be a member of the church. You see the discernment? You see the difference? Why? Because you have a false Christ. What about an Arminian? Don't they have a false Christ? No, they're inconsistent. If an Arminian was consistent, he would be a universalist and an open theist. But because he's not consistent, his inconsistency means that he believes that Christ died for him, that salvation is through none other except through Jesus Christ, and that God is not dependent upon creation in order to make his decisions, right? So you have all these things, but the point is, is we need to err on the side of grace. Is that the word? David says, yeah, that's the word, right? Grace. Grace. Okay. So they come and think about this, especially in our culture. How many people are reformed in our culture? So if you're only going to, okay, you're out there, you're talking to somebody. They're not reformed. They're not Presbyterian. They're not reformed Baptist, any of this stuff. And you're like, okay, well, have a good day. We're clearly at odds here. No, what do we do? We hang out with them. We teach them. We, we train them. We help them see the scriptures. And you know how it is. People that love the Lord, they, they come around pretty quick. When they start realizing, wow, God is sovereign. Wow, predestination is all over the place in the Bible. Wow, there is. Okay, I see. What they're Methodists. When's the last time there's been a decent Methodist church in the United States? Well, there are a few, actually. <laughs> there are some. There are some God-fearing Methodist churches out there. There really are. They just had a split, actually. The Methodists are, some people, some Methodist churches want to be more conservative, right? But again, the first thing that should not happen is us looking at that and said, okay, well, were they reformed? Okay, how reformed, though? Were they five pointers? Yes, but okay, what confession? Oh, good. So they're Westminster Confession guys. Well, are they post mill or all mill? Right down the list. Okay, are they super lapsarian or infralapsarian? And then you go down the list, and of course it gets smaller and smaller. That's, that's what John's doing. That's what we're not doing, right? But it doesn't mean that as we look at these things, it doesn't mean that discernment should just be thrown out the window. Because there are false counterfeit measures when it comes to any revival. There are counterfeit revivals. So that's what you're doing. You see the difference? But it's the mindset. The mindset is not being so... So cautious and so rigid and so strict that nothing can be genuine unless it's done in your little group. Okay? Now, and the reason for that goes back to sanctification. I think in a lot of sense. Okay? When you're talking about sanctification, you, we, we all realize that this is, this is something I brought up with Al Baker. Whenever I went from being a Reformed Baptist to a Presbyterian, one of the things that really, really concerned me was when we go out and evangelize, you know, hardly anybody's Presbyterian out there. Hardly anybody. So I'm looking at this thinking, man, nobody's going to be part of, nobody's going to be able to be part of the church because nobody, you know, for the large, a large amount of people that come in, they're not Presbyterian. And it takes years, you know, before you start seeing some of these. So here's the thing. I'm, I'm thinking, man, because, you know why? Because in the Baptist churches, if you don't hold to our to their particular view of baptism, and a lot of times even it's even stricter, right? Then you can't be a member of the church. So I thought that's kind of how it was. So I'm talking to Al, and Al's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Why, why couldn't they be a member of the church, even if they're not Presbyterian? And I'm like, well, it's a Presbyterian church. 
What do you mean? He said, no, no, no. Listen, if, if they are a believer in Jesus Christ, and their profession backs that up, and their lifestyle backs that up, why would we not allow them to be members in the church if Christ himself has accepted them, if Christ himself has saved them? Why would we hold, hold them back? Eureka, right? It's like, oh, well, duh. And so here, and that's, that's, they're marching through, and they're on their way to the promised land, and they're going to the promised land. They're in the wilderness, and they start having this, this situation. Moses in verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses was displeased. They were complaining. There was a a plague that broke out. There's a lot of of disunity and hard feelings in the camp. But look what happens. Moses is turning to God, and Moses is like God. Look at verse 12. Was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am, I, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Because they're saying we're hungry. It was better for us in Egypt. We were eating onions, we were eating melons and leeks and all this really rich food. We come out in the desert and here you are, we have nothing to eat. So Moses turns to God and he's saying, God, I can't do the work by myself. This work is too great for me. That's the mindset. You see what I mean? That's the mindset that Christ has. That's the mindset John does not have. See, John doesn't... John doesn't John thinks that, hey, we can handle it all. What do we need this guy casting out demons for way out here? He's not with us. We can handle it. There's a monopoly of spiritual power going on almost. You know, trying to, hey, this is, this is, this is all ours. This is, who's this guy trying to do it? This is ours. Here's the same thing, okay? Moses is recognizing there's a need that I can't fulfill. I can't do this, Lord. And so how does God respond? Verse 16, the Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them. And they shall. And that, that's the Spirit, not of regeneration per se. We're assuming they're already regenerated, but this is more of in, the, in the sense of being able to minister to these people. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. I'm going to take care of you, Moses. I'm going to delegate some of this. But look what happens. Go down to verse 27. Let's start in verse 26. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. Right? So they're all supposed to go to where Moses is. Two of the guys, two of the 70, stay back. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So they're not, right, they're over here. They're supposed to be in the tent of meeting. They're back here in the camp, and the Spirit of God falls upon these guys, and they start prophesying. Verse 27, a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Kind of like John, right? The disciples. Jesus, do you know what we saw? Do you know what they're expecting Jesus to say? Well, shame on that man. What do you mean he was out here exercising demons, but he's not with us? Shame on that guy. This guy comes running to Moses, thinking the same thing. Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua gets in on it. Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Just like John, right? What does John do? He restrains them. They restrain them. Moses, stop these guys. They're prophesying in your name. But they're not in the group, right? They're outside the group. But they're... And look at Moses' response. Same thing as Christ. 
Verse 29, But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. That's what Jesus is saying. Guys, this work, He's saying, this work is much bigger than you and this little group here. This is a worldwide, this is a, this is a work that is going to go from sea to sea. The knowledge of the Lord is going to spread from sea to sea. This work is beyond us. It's beyond the twelve apostles. And so, Moses gets that. Jesus gets that. They realize the extent and the need that this is going to require. And so that's what you have. So if you go back to Mark, when Christ is saying, hey, this guy's out here, he's, it's a welcome participation in the mission. He's happy. Moses is grateful. Moses, praise God. We have, so, we have other people doing this besides us. Praise God, because we can't do it all. That's like, and you know how it is. When we went out, and you know, here's the beauty. Go back to all the abortion fight that we had, right? We, we know. Without the other churches, without a lot of the other ministers, could we have done it? Could that happen? No. So what you're seeing, and that's a good taste of, I think, what's going on here. Now, doctrinally, as far as working together, that's one thing. Doctrinally, though, it doesn't mean... So, for instance, when he's saying, look in, in 39, he says, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words... He says in verse 40, for he who is not against us is for us. You're talking about allegiances here. Okay? There's two camps. There's only two camps. There's always been only two kinds of people. You're either for Christ, your allegiance is either for God. Even before Christ came to the earth, you, you, you had people who were God-fearing, legitimately, sincerely. They feared God. They wanted to honor God. And you had people who are against God. And so Christ is pointing that out. You only have, and this is a colloquial phrase, a lot of people use it in, that, in those days, but this is what you have. You have people who are either a thing. He says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name. See the difference? Because of your name. As followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. What's he talking about? Well, guys, did you go out, when you saw this guy casting out demons, how did you treat this guy? I know he wasn't of us, but how did you treat him? Well, we tried to stop him. What is that? Why did you try to stop him? What should they have done? Something like, well, give him a cup of cold water. Serve him. Remember, because the conversation stems from last week, where it was all about selfish ambition, all about rank and ego, and who's ahead of whom, and who's going to serve me. And Christ turns around and says, no, no, no. It should be about who are you going to serve? Who are you going to help? Who are you going to aid? Who are you going to invest in? That's the language, in a sense, the mindset that he's trying to redirect here. He's saying, guys, listen, the cup of cold water here, you know what else is neat about this? A cup of cold water, that seems insignificant. That's the point. It's trivial. It's mundane. It's, it's, it's nothing, it's, it's not like, I don't know, I mean, there's different ways that you can help somebody out. Giving them a cup of cold water is not the first thing that you would think of as far as like this really grand example of helping somebody out. No, he takes a very small example. Listen, guys, even when you give a cup of cold water, what's he saying? It's like in Matthew 25. You went to the person who's a Christian, a brother or sister, and they're sick, or they're in jail for the sake of the name, or they're needy, they, 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 they don't have something, right? And how we respond to that person demonstrates... What we think about Christ. And so when in Matthew 25, they're giving, they're, they're going to um, see people who are sick. They're visiting people in jail. What does Christ say? 
What does he say? To the extent that you've done something like this for even the least of these, you've done it for me also. And that's what he's telling the disciples. So these guys, now look at this. I'm going to give you a, something that is always very encouraging to me. And I think maybe a year ago I read this because we're talking about rewards. But you notice here he says, you will not, he will not lose his reward. Are you rewarded for your good service? Are you rewarded for your service to the Lord? For your work for the Lord? Does God reward you for that? does. And it's always kind of a trick, you know? I could tell everybody was a little cautious to answer that, because we're good Calvinists. We're like, well, wait a minute, because all of my good works, I know, are like filthy garments in the eyes of God. I can't do anything good at all apart from God working in me. So in a sense, I can't. why would I get rewarded if God is the one that's given me the grace and the ability to do the good thing that I do? That's exactly right. Amen. That's exactly right. We can't, we know if we do anything good at all, it's because God helps us to do it. So why should we be rewarded for that? Well, that's why it's, even the reward is grace. Even the reward is something we don't deserve. There was an illustration, a, a young man told, actually Easton, I think we all know Easton. Easton, after the service today, he came up and he showed me, you know, some really obscure reformer guy that I'd never even, you know. Have you ever read this guy on that? <laughs> I'd never even heard of the guy. So I'm reading that though. I have, I, I, I think it was Vermigli or something. Vermigli. Anyway, this guy, he says this. The illustration he used is very appropriate. He says this like this, if you're catechizing your children and your child answers the question in the right way, you might reward them with, I don't know, like I, sometimes I'll give James raisins, something like that, right? Does James, does, does the child deserve a reward? No, because you told him to do it and he has to do it, right? He's your child. He's under your authority. So he does it. But when he does it, you reward that. See that? Now, it's a lot different, actually, in this scenario, because we know that it wasn't me producing that in James to make him say the right answer. Whereas in Christ, anytime we do anything good at all, it is all a work of grace that God gives us. This is what Bobbing says, though. He says, in that kingdom, too, eternal kingdom, there will be variation and change within the oneness of the fellowship. So we're all, by God's grace, we're all there, right? Well, even... In eternity, there's going to be variation and change within the oneness of the fellowship. Small and great will be there, the first and the last. Each person will there receive his own name and his own place in accordance with the works of faith and love which he has done on earth. For he who sows sparingly shall also harvest sparingly. I mean, think of this, right? What you put in for God's kingdom on earth, you're going to harvest in the eternal kingdom. There is reward in heaven for all the persecution which the disciple of Jesus has borne for his sake and for every deed which he has done in his name. In proportion as a person has been faithful in using the talents given him, he will in the kingdom of God receive greater honor and lordship. Even the cup of cold water, which in the name of a disciple is given to one of his little ones, will not be forgotten in the day of judgment. He crowns and rewards the good works which in and through himself he brought into being through his own. Now, that is motivation, right? That's motivation. Saying, okay, look, it's not done in vain. Like we mentioned last week, nobody may be seeing anything you're doing for the kingdom of God, but God sees that and you're going to be rewarded for that. We know this is not meritorious. We know it's not me. If I have enough good works, then I can get into heaven. No, because it's Christ that did the work. But we as God's people are to respond in such a way where we love God, we love our neighbor, and in doing so, we don't lose our reward. That makes sense? 
That is what he's talking about here with this water. You, to the extent that you give someone a glass of cold water, you're doing it for Christ. He will not lose his reward. Now, the very last verse here, whoever causes one of these little ones, he's talking about disciples here. And you see this because he says, who believe to stumble. And last week we talked about when Christ took the child. Remember, they're still in the house. He took the child last week. He's still in that house in the conversation. He takes the child and he's talking about receiving this child in my name. But the whole illustration was regarding them as disciples and them being childlike. So child, the child here is the little one here. Whoever causes one of these little ones, he's talking about believers. Now, here's the, here's the catch. Think of this. Think about what Christ, who's he talking to when he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, who's the little one that he's talking about? The guy who's exercising the demon. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, He had been cast into the sea. You guys are out there causing my disciples to be disabled in their work for the Lord. You're disabling it. You're stopping that. You know what what the result of that is, guys? It would be better. Not it's going to be the same thing, right? Not, hey, here's the judgment. You're going to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown in the sea. No, he said that would be much better then what's going to happen to anybody that does that? Now, when you look at the language, it's graphic, it's extreme, it's serious, and that's the point. It takes you back to whenever Peter hears Jesus say, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, and they're going to do whatever they want with me, and then I'm going to rise from the dead, and Peter takes him aside and says, Jesus, you're out of your mind. You can't say that you're going to die. And what does Jesus tell him? You're behind me, Satan. This is what's going on here. Remember, Peter and John are both part of the inner group of disciples. Think how sobering that is. And they also receive some of the hardest rebukes that Jesus gives. So you have this. And the millstone here, there's two kinds of millstones that the Scripture gives us. One of the millstones, so so they'd have these millstones, a big rock with a circle. The small kind you can turn by your hand, with hand. But this is the kind that only a donkey can turn. It's a big one. Okay, so this is a very serious thing. And it leaves us to ask ourselves, when you're looking at this, okay, let's take, let's, let's stop here. This is what Matthew Henry says, okay? Let's stop here and have some application. I'm sorry for, we're going to stop here. No, hold on. Not yet. Soon. Here's the thing, okay? This is what Matthew Henry says. Those that differ in communion, meaning those that are in different churches, those that are in different fellowships, those that are a different persuasion, while they agree to fight against Satan under the banner of Christ, ought to look upon one another as on the same side. That's why in the abortion fight, it was very, and I know it's still ongoing, certainly ongoing, but it was very sanctifying for me when you have to come alongside of these guys, and I'm not talking Roman Catholics, I'm talking more like Farrell DeFore and, and Tommy and those guys, these guys, we got huge disagreements with a lot of what they're doing. And it's not to just give it a blanket pass, right? But it's saying, like he says here, Matthew Henry, fighting against Satan under the banner of Christ. Do I think these churches are preaching correctly and teaching right doctrine? No. Do I think they're brothers in the Lord? Absolutely. Yes. 
Because of their inconsistency, yes, theologically, but because Christ has bought, bought them from damnation. He's delivered their souls. They're, they're absolutely, they're children of God. You see that? That's the difference. And so you can come alongside of that and work together and fight, uh, fight together alongside of each other because our foe is Christ and we're under the banner of Christ. Or excuse me, our foe is Satan and we're under the banner of Christ. That's why you have, so, so think about the state of the American church. This is why it's so important for us to be patient and very long-suffering when we're working or talking to other people. The state of the church in the United States is horrendous. It's horrible. It's ferocious. We know this. But sheep are there. God has His sheep there. Even in Roman Catholic groups. God has His sheep there. And so what do we do? Do we dismiss the teaching? Absolutely. The people, you know, here's the thing. You know, when, when we're at Texas Tech, you know, I, we, we encounter the Roman Catholics. But you know, it's, it's a shame, right? Because it's not... You know how it is. You're talking to them. A lot of times they have no idea. Where do you? So, so this is the process of saying, okay, they could be sheep. You know, these churches like at Faith Christian, all these, you go there and you're like, what are you hearing? This is horrendous. This is so out in left field, it's not even close to being biblical. So you condemn the teaching. But are there sheep there? I think so. So what do you do? By God's grace, try to help the sheep. Help them to a better understanding of the scriptures. So that's what we have to understand, of course. And also, um, when we're doing this, here's the thing. I do not want to dismiss good doctrine here. We are not, see, here's the thing. Our unity is in Christ, but who is Christ? Who is Christ? If I ask some of these people who Christ is, they're going to give me different, different answers, right? So there is a correct teaching. God is a God of precision. God gives us a correct teaching in Scripture. And so this is what this this isn't quite done yet um, as far as well, I'm gonna do this. Usually we stop, we pray, we come to the table. Actually, we stop, we pray, I preach a little, and then we come to the table. So I'm just gonna combine the second part with this part, because this is how we'll close the entire thing, and then we'll come to the table. Okay, we're all gonna we're gonna do the whole thing in one. Here's the thing, okay? We do have to be intolerant. Think of that. We do have to be intolerant about Christ. We have to, another way to put it is we have to be inflexible when it comes to Christ. So if you, if you look around the, the, the world today, if you look around and you, you see all of the, like in China and in India, Africa, they're having these revivals. But when you go and if you were to inspect what's going on, it's going to look a lot different than what we're used to. It's going to look a lot different. You're going to hear things that are different. But does it mean that it's, that, it's, that it's false? Not necessarily. It could, but not necessarily. So here's the thing, okay? If you look at John 17, John 17, and this takes us into the Lord's Supper, because it, in John 17, they're at the Passover meal. They're at the Passover, and Christ is instituting the Passover. And in verse 20, look what he says. He says this. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. You see the unity there? 
that they all may be one. Now, notice who he says, not just for these at this table, but for everyone that these disciples are going to go to with the gospel, that all of them will be one as well. When you speak of what Catholic is, when we were reciting the Apostles' Creed, do we not say, I believe in one holy Catholic church? What does Catholic mean? Universal. Catholicity. That's a good word. But when you insert Rome before that, guess what happens? It's a contradiction. Rome is a very particular thing. Very definite thing. Rome and Catholic, they don't go together. See that? That's why when we're looking at this, we're not saying, okay, I believe in one Presbyterian church or one Baptist church. I believe in one Holy Catholic Church, meaning the saints who are right now saints, being converted by God, saved by God, wherever they are, whether they're wherever they are in the world, wherever they are in Clovis, that we're part of the same church as they are. The same unity. That's what Christ is saying here, that there should be unity. But the point is, as far as the inflexibility is this. Look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. You see that? Set them apart in the truth. Inflexibility when it comes to truth. So if I'm sitting down with some of these guys from these other churches that I do think are Christians and I do think they're saved, it doesn't mean that just because we're both Christians that we got everything figured out, but rather it's to say, I want to help them grow in their understanding of what the truth is. See that? I don't dismiss them. So what should John have done? John sees the guy out there casting out demons. What should John have done? Not hinder the work, not stop the work, but like people do, they come alongside of Apollos in, 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 in Acts. He's only heard of John's baptism. Oh, this guy, he's a, get, get this, let's go. He's only heard of John's baptism. Let's go, guys, we're out of here. No, they set, they set him aside, they work with him, they work with him, they work with him. See the difference? Sanctify them, set them apart in your truth. So we're inflexible when it comes to truth. We're inflexible when it comes to Christ. But we also know that people in their process of sanctification, they're not where we are theologically. And then again, maybe they are, some of them, right? I look at a guy like Tommy Tommy Holstead, maturity-wise, Christian maturity-wise, he's he's a thousand times where I, I, I am. So there's different Stages here, different levels and even categories of sanctification. But look what he says here. He says, your word is truth. Whenever, you know, think of this, okay, the unity comes about, the unity happens. Where does, where's the unity ruptured? Where does that happen? At the fall. At the fall, what happens, you know what sin does? Sin alienates. Sin has an individualizing effect. Is that a word? Yeah, individualizing. An atomizing effect. It, it disintegrates people. So you go from being a unit to all of a sudden now you're disintegrated. So what, is, what does the gospel do? The gospel comes back in and the gospel, all these, that's why you have Pentecost, right? What do you have at, what do you have at Tower of Babel? Tower of Babel, people are speaking in different languages. That's the curse of God, the judgment of God for their sin. They're scattered. They're disintegrated. On Pentecost, it's brought together. Different languages, but they're understood now. There's unity amongst the different nations. They're coming together under the umbrella of the gospel. That's why you have every tongue, every tribe, every nation coming together. And so if you have every tongue, every tribe, every nation under the umbrella of the gospel, you know what you have? You have unity despite the diversity now. 
So unity, but there will be diversity. So the restoration of the gospel because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the body of Jesus Christ, because Christ has died for people outside of this church as well. Therefore, who are we to say, you know what, I'm not going to work with you, I'm not going to talk with you, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to have anything. In fact, I'm going to try to stop you, even though Christ died for you. And I'm saying that as a person who believes in particular redemption, that he did, right? Christ died for his sheep. If you're a sheep, who am I to try to stop that? That doesn't mean you can't correct, it doesn't mean you can't instruct. But as far as the work of God, as far as the mission of God, are we going to be sectarian and think only post-millennial, reformed, Presbyterian, supralapsarian, you know, like all the categories, only them, only that group is doing the work. No, there's a lot of work going on right now for the kingdom of God. And so as we come to the Lord's table, here's the beauty of the Lord's table. When we come to the table, we see the gospel has united me with God because of the work in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I'm now reconciled to God. But you know what happens? I'm also united and reconciled to all the brothers and sisters in the entire universe from the days of Adam and Seth when they called upon the name of the Lord until the very last believer goes in. And we're united now. And the Lord's Supper demonstrates that. The Lord's Supper is a, this is why we don't do it at our house. This is, this is why we don't do it in our, 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 at our kitchen, right? We do it as a, as a body, as a church. We have this unity. And so, and by the way, the irony, who's at the table at John 17? The sectarians. And Jesus, you know, John, John's at the table now. John's hearing this stuff. And when you see John's letters over here, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, John is the one, and if we have time, we'd go to it. But in one of John's letters, he, he's saying, I'm, I'm writing to you, you know, my dearly beloved in the, in the faith, because you received this group when they came to you. You received them. You didn't turn them away. You received them because they were about the work of the gospel. It clicks for the guy, eventually. But right now, in Mark chapter 9, it hasn't. But for us, by God's grace, let's pray that it does. All right, uh, we'll pass out the elements. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, we'd ask that you don't partake of it. Christ commands that you don't partake of it. It's the Lord's table. Um, If you're in any unrepentant sin... If you're under church discipline, if you haven't been baptized, we'd also ask that you don't partake of the elements. If you have any questions on any of those things, just come, ask, talk to us, okay? Uh, when we hand out the, uh, the, the, the elements, the wine is, so the grape juice is around the ring and the wine is on the, in the inside, okay? So the, the, I know I just totally butchered that. The outer ring is wine, juice, okay, great. Just smell it. (laughs) So, yeah. um, But, yeah, if you have any questions on that, please let us know, okay, on any of this.